as cultural phenomena go, there are few, perhaps none, that rival the impact, reach and longevity of either the Beatles or James Bond. That both of these made their first significant impact on the public consciousness on the same day, the 5th of October 1962, with the release of the Beatles' first record, Love Me Do, and Dr. No, the first James Bond film, was a significant enough piece of synchronicity for John Hicks to begin an investigation into the decades-long dance between two very different visions of the world, of Britain, of masculinity, of art, of love, and inevitably, of death. The result is a meticulously researched, devilishly readable book that is so fascinating, we're even ready to forgive the outrageous punning of the title, <laughs> Love and Let Die. I'm delighted to say that John Higgs joins us today. John, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Oh, well, good to talk to you, Adam. Yes, I, I apologise for that pun. I felt bad <laughs> when we went with it. For a long time, I was going, this book should be called Happiness is a Warm Gun. That's the title. That's a, that's a cool title. We'll sort of go with that. But I just knew you'd then have to explain what it was. Sure. If you go with Love and Let Die, people just get the, it uh... immediately. And it had to be that. Ashamed as I am, it had to be that. I also rather liked uh, the title of our email exchange we had when we were setting this up, which was Bondles, which yes. again wouldn't have meant much to a lot of people. But I've, it's now how I affectionately think of uh, it's. Uh, it's how the book is referred to internally with the publishers, with my agent, with my family. It's just, I'm working on the Bondles, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, ideally, one day there'll be a, a Beatles uh, covers band that just plays Bond themes um, called the Bondles. There's <laughs> a career a in that idea. for someone. So it's <laughs> clearly going to work. Um, let's let's talk about that. Um, I mean, I said in the introduction, and maybe I'm wrongly assuming that it was the discovery of this date, mm. that sort of this common date between the release of Love Me Do and the release of the movie of Doctor No, that set you off on on this quest. Was that the was that the case, or was it this kind of moment of sort of? synchronicity that suddenly made you think there's something in this yeah did you have a sense of uh of it already yeah it was it was definitely one of the key moments when things just fell into place and i've been thinking a lot about the beatles and i was enough of a beatles nerd that once that when i just noticed on i think it was on wikipedia page that dr no was released on the 5th of october 1962 little alarm bells went off in my head and it was like no that that can't be the case that can't be the case but a lot of it was because my previous book was about william blake mm-hmm. um william blake versus the world and so i'd been thinking a lot in his terms and he talks a lot about countries about opposites about he, he writes about the marriage of heaven and hell. He doesn't write about heaven or hell. He joins them together, and it's the dynamic between them that really matters in the Blakean worldview. Um, and so this notion is if you just put two opposites next to each other, what story would that tell? What they have, Suddenly they put each, each other in a weird, sharp focus. Suddenly you learn so much about them just by being sat next to the other. Um, and Bond and the Beatles, to me, seem to be those opposites. And just by putting them next to each other, it's just, you know, it's like a whole thing then started to to fall out of that, that pairing. It would just seem too irresistible. But yeah, it, yeah. it needed the little synchronicity to, uh, to justify it. Yeah, Not to myself, yeah. but to everyone else, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is that um, sort of extraordinary thing about them as cultural phenomenon. I mean, so these are two, as you, as you say early on in the book, like the the extent to which these two uh, phenomena have not only sort of had an impact on popular culture, but also over such a long period mm. of time is so completely unprecedented. It really. makes no sense at all. It's it's utterly implausible. And if it hadn't happened, 
you wouldn't believe it. You know, the idea that, you know, one film character can run for 60 years and make 25 sequels and everyone will make money. And, you know, it's just impossible. No film producers can do that. That just doesn't happen. It's just insane. And the idea that the Beatles, you know, a band could do what the Beatles have done. It's just not going to happen. No one believes that. They're both um, so implausible that if it wasn't for the fact that they surround us so much, we, you know, we'd we'd be shocked by them. Um, And and they kind of needed to be sort of talked about together because they shared that. Whereas talking about the Beatles in the context of other 1960s bands doesn't really get you anywhere if you talk about Bond in the context of, you know, film franchises. It's not quite the same thing. They're um, they're monsters, really. They're just cultural monsters uh, of the like we haven't really come across before. Um, yeah, and they, yeah, need, yeah. they need to be seen, and especially because the Beatles are so domestic. You know, they're, they're so much part of our families, of our, our lives. They're, they're always there. They're no trouble. They don't bother us. They're just a lovely <laughs> thing in the background. It's it's easy to overlook the the enormity of what it is that they've done and, and how much mm. they've changed our world. Mm. It's a little bit, I guess, like the um, the paintings of Van Gogh or like the Mona Lisa mm. or something like mm. that, which are, you know, when you you experience them so early on and that you're told that they're genius that you don't really question. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it's only and I mean it was a sim- actually a weirdly similar experience for me. Uh, because this is the first book I've read about the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And I, I think as a fan, I kind of avoided finding out too much about them because I wanted to just mm. be with the music. But a few years ago, when I remember reading the Vincent van Gogh's letters to Theo, his brother, sure, sure. and how that enriched my understanding of his work yeah. was really, really profound. And in reading this book, I suddenly realized actually getting to know the Beatles themselves, mm. getting to know the context of their life, getting to know the uh the i guess the the atmosphere which forged them yeah has only kind of yeah enriched yeah. and their relationships as well the relationships yeah. I'd, I'd heartily recommend uh because with the beatles you've got the music which is amazing uh but you've also got the story and the story is still sort of with us and still ongoing and still being picked over and still being shaped i think there's been over two thousand books about the beatles that's a, <laughs> a figure i've, I've heard uh, and it's it seems implausible that you could still find things to write about them. But the fact that you can, you know, I think we're moving away from what happened. A lot of books just really researching the details and nailing the facts and getting out what happened. And the work of people like Mark Lewison has been invaluable right. here. It allows us to now move to, well, what does it mean? You know, and that's mm. a whole other sort of area. to, to the, the odd thing with the Beatles is I've read a lot of book about, about the uh-huh. Beatles, if you can imagine. <laughs> But they're all good. They're all great. Even when you don't really agree with the the over sort of, it, the, the more you learn about them, the richer it gets. It's kind of like they're kind of infinite. Mm-hmm. That you never get bored of them. You can never go too deep with the Beatles. It's very odd. Yeah. You don't come yeah. to that point where I go, yeah, I've exhausted this now. Ah, uh-huh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> you, you just can't find that point with the Beatles. Yeah. It's amazing. Let's talk a little bit about the sort of the, I guess the 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 pot in which both of these phenomena were stewed before sort of emerging onto the world. Now, so, you know, they, they came more or less to public consciousness around the, the, the same time on this particular day for these two releases. Mm. But of course, one thing I guess it's crucial to the type of product and the sort of the vision of the world that each of them represented was that 
obviously Fleming and the Beatles were of very different generations. Yes. And I guess crucially would have experienced or not experienced the the Second World War in, in different ways. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that, that the Second World War is a huge sort of dividing line. Um, and the generation that was sort of raised after it um, mm. had such different values and such different attitudes um, that the the generation gap, as it, as it was called, was so it was so severe that the, a lot of this, I think, a lot of this comes from um, the end of the of Britain seeing itself as a global empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's slightly after the, the, the World War II, World War Two ended, but certainly after the Suez Crisis in 1956, mm-hmm. even the most you know jingoistic, diehard nationalistic Brit could no longer go yes. We are still a global empire ruling the world or anything like that. But that Have you been around the last six or seven yeah. years, John? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> yes, that is a good point. It still lingers, doesn't it? And Bond is one of the things that it, it can sort of linger around, like that sort of thing. But after the Suez, it was a real sort of change. And up to that point, it had been... We'd, for a couple of centuries before, the story of Britain was we, we rule the waves, Britannia rules the waves, the sun never sets on the British Empire, we are a global power, we didn't say anything wrong with it, we didn't question it, that was us. And when that collapsed, when that died, um, that left the question of, well, if we're not that, then who are we? You know, mm-hmm. What was the new story about to sort of, sort of come? And so when Bond and the Beatles both emerged at the same time, uh, both seeming terribly modern, really sort yeah. of fresh and poppy and sort of modern. Um, it's no surprise that people sort of jumped on it to the extent. But there was a, there was a real sort of uh, difference in the way that um, Bond was like, it was it was interested in modern things, it like sports cars, it like mm. glamour, it like flying around the world, it, it you know, the sort of conspicuous consumption and 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 the sort of exotic thrill in, in Fleming's novels was sort of but the attitudes were like, mm. no, we're not changing any of our attitudes. The attitudes are the same, but the things can get get different. The Beatles, it was the opposite. It was a complete rejection of the the previous attitudes to things like sexuality and drugs and just how how long men's hair can be, just stupid <laughs> things like that, clothes, fashion, all the all these sort of things. But they were quite interested in, you know, Victoriana in like their childhood mm. in Penny Lane. There was a nostalgic sort of sense of looking back at you know th- things of Britain. So in that way, they were very very sort of different, very sort of um, opposed. As, as mm. I see it, anyway, I see them as very, yeah. very, very opposed. There is a sense, I guess, that sort of where where the Beatles, in response to this kind of question, as you put it, as like, who are we? Who are you know? What is Britain as a nation? Whereas the Beatles was that there was a kind of an expansive mm. approach to that. They were kind of trying to widen it, trying to question what it was. In a weird kind of way, I guess with Bond. It's sort of saying, oh, you know, we are the same, but we've in some way gone underground. Like, you know, we may not be winning the wars. We may not have the empire, but we're still exerting this influence, you know, in in ways that you can't see. But we're still there, which sounds like a really kind of the way that somebody who has lost a lot is trying to reassure themselves that they're still important. Yeah, definitely. We're still saving the world. You know, if it wasn't for us, you know, the world would be obliterated by now. Yeah, it's it's um, it's a fantasy you know mm-hmm. but it's a powerful one it is it is a really sort of powerful one and it's one that a lot of people sort of needed and, and sort of cling to um and i think that's why the I'm 
jumping ahead here, but I'm not wishing to spoil the end of the last Bond film for people who haven't seen it. <laughs> I am going to spoil it. There's no, there's no way to complete the sentence without yeah, spoiling yeah, yeah. it. It was such a shock for people to see James Bond die at mm. the end of that film because um, the whole thing with him was he always won. Uh-huh. You know, he had complete mastery of the material world. He would always win. And it was like it was such a, it was one of those few things in your life that you can rely on, you know. Mm-hmm. For decades and decades, you've been going to see James Bond films, knowing that, like, him, the, the English white guy, is just going to win. And to yeah. see him fail was such a shock for a lot of people. As uh-huh. necessary as I think it was for the, the future of the, the character, it was... Yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was it was a real it was a real brave um, uh, artistic choice on behalf of the producers and, and Daniel Craig. Yeah, you know it was it was your book that spoiled that for me actually because as a as a <laughs> father of a, of, of a two year old child, I haven't really been to the cinema yeah. uh, much in the in the last few years, and that I must admit when I mean I can't even having not seen the film, I mm. can't quite. Like it, it, I can't quite even sort of conceptualize how that yeah. might work, James, yeah. James Bond. Because as you say, it's so completely anathema part, to the character. Part of you thinks I'm making it up, don't you? Yeah, I can't quite believe it. <laughs> Is this a massive grift of yours, <laughs> Adam? It's absolutely true. And um, and to any listeners, I've spilt this for. I'm starting to feel really bad about this. Um, I mean, it is well worth a what? But I mean, seeing it without knowing that, you know, going to see the film when it came out or sort of managing to avoid spoilers, which held off for about a week mm-hmm. or so before it all sort of, all sort of uh, were, were everywhere. It, it was quite an unforgettable cinematic experience because mm-hmm. you've, I don't ever recall being that shocked in a, in a cinema before or that gobsmacked, just sort yeah. of sitting mutely during the um, <laughs> end titles, hoping that that phrase, James Bond will return, would sort of scroll up at the end. And it did, but it was right at the very end. It really made you uh-huh. wait for it. And, it, and if they put 007 will return, you know, because in the film there's another character, a character called Nomi, who takes on the, the code name 007. Uh-huh. That would have just, you know, people would have rioted. <laughs> it would have been furious. <laughs> it would have been insane. If Britain is febrile enough as it is at the moment. Oh, God. Uh... Yeah, absolutely <laughs> it is. You won't believe what people will vote for over in this country. <laughs> Jesus Christ, it's insane. I think James no, Bond is part, a part of the uh, pretense that it's not insane, this country. Um, mm. the, the, the need to sort of project that sort of Downton Abbey sort of um, everything's all right and we are in charge oh. and we know what we're doing sort of thing. Um, we, we protest too much. We're, re- we're mm. really, really confused and mad yeah. in this country. Well, um, you raising Downton Abbey brings me on to the, the next thing I wanted to talk about Um uh, and which is for one of the reasons I've never watched Downton Abbey is <laughs> this question of class, actually, yeah. which have kind of, you know, we talked about the generational divide between Fleming and the Beatles, but I guess a probably even more significant divide than that was the their backgrounds yeah. and their kind of the way they were raised and the education that they that they had. Yeah, absolutely. The um you couldn't avoid it when you was writing this book. It just, you know, it's just screamed sort of class all the time. It was the way that they were treated and the way that the establishment viewed them. And and, and things like um, the act of Harold Wilson, the prime minister at the time, putting them forward to get MBEs from the Queen mm-hmm. and just the um, horror of the establishment when that happened and all, all various previous uh, people who'd been honoured returning their awards just, mm-hmm. just shocked and disgusted that like 
people as low as the Beatles uh. were being raised to their level. You know, uh, pe- they didn't see it as people as talented as the Beatles mm. were on being put on a similar level to them. It was it was their background, uh, the fact they're from Liverpool, uh, the fact they didn't hide it. They just weren't deferential. Mm. All that had gone. It's there's a there's it's interesting watching Goldfinger and um, a Hard Day's Night back to back because they're mm. both visions of Britain in 1964. They both came out at the same time. They're so different. In you know, in um, Goldfinger, a bowler hat is a is a thing to be feared. It's like uh-huh. a terrible weapon that you know a, your servant will throw at the the enemy for you, and it will chop their head off. It's a, uh, in Hard Day's Night, a bowler hat is just something to be ridiculed. Mm. You know, and there in there is is was the changes that were sort of happening in the country at the same in in that question of what should we think of a bowler hat? You know, that's that's where the future was sort of emerging mm. and being born, and the old way of seeing things uh, was being you know certainly kicked to the curb. It didn't mean that actual power, you know, actual um, mm. connections, actual privilege and stuff was going to be wiped out, but the the um, the, the glamour it put around itself, the, the, uh-huh. the excuses it used to uh, justify its existence um, were, were being just shown up. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Very and it, one thing I think is really, really interesting and which you kind of insist on in the book, particularly in connection to, uh, to Ringo, who was like a very um, sickly child, mm. was this sense of like how the, the social changes that came about after the second world war, particularly the foundation of the, the NHS mm. uh, in a way, sort of sowed the seeds for the kind of uh the sort of the working class creativity of uh people you know the the people who became the Beatles to uh yeah to 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 have even the sort of the the oxygen I guess to to express definitely definitely and there was an education act and I think I think it was 1944 Mm. that also had a really significant impact and allowed people like hard-working like young kids from you know the poorer parts of the country um, to go to like a, a grammar school or a better school mm-hmm. uh, as they did and the, the, both the education and the uh, NHS and all the sort of welfare changes made such a difference um, which and, Fleming was against as well you he, was, out. He, yeah, was a... he, he really <laughs> was not happy about them he really wished that when Churchill came back to power he got rid of the welfare state and the NHS and all, all those things he was very furious about that In 1968, the novelist and screenwriter Hanif Qureshi was a 13-year-old student at an all-male comprehensive school on the border between London and Kent. It was here that he was told by his music teacher, Mr Hogg, that John Lennon and Paul McCartney did not write the Beatles songs. The whole setup, apparently, was a con. All that wonderful music had to have been written by others, most likely the more cultured Brian Epstein and George Martin. As to the question of whether the four Beatles were allowed to play on their records, Hogg thought it was more likely that real musicians were used instead. It's easy now to scoff at Hogg's snobbery, but for many people with a privileged upbringing, this was a logical position to take. People like Hogg had been taught from childhood that those who went to the right schools and came from better families were superior to those who didn't. This fact was so central to their worldview and so wedded to the rest of their thinking that any challenge to it was dangerous. 
If it was the case that talent, imagination, commitment, and even genius were evenly spread throughout the population, and that the only thing which was localized in the children of the wealthy was opportunity, then the implications were too shocking to contemplate. It would imply that rather than being run by the brightest and the best, as many in positions of power claimed, the country was run by a small gang who were statistically likely to be mediocre. Great Britain would in fact be lesser Britain if this were true, a country that failed to live up to its potential by some margin. To entertain this idea, therefore, put an entire worldview at risk, and there is nothing we unconsciously try to protect as much as our worldview. In circumstances like these, it can be safer to cling to a conspiracy theory, because a small delusion is often the best way to protect a large one. As Qureshi later wrote, he began to see that to admit to the Beatles' genius would devastate Hogg. It would take too much else away with it. The arrival of the Beatles was a profound challenge to the British status quo. The Beatles hadn't gone to the right schools, and they were certainly not from the right families. They were northern, and they were not deferential. How was it possible that they were more talented songwriters than their social betters? It may seem like a trivial point, but the legitimacy of the British establishment hinged on the answer. So that section about Hanif Qureshi, uh, which you read for us, it sort of, it really highlights the, um, I guess, how destabilizing mm. the Beatles were. Just this kind of, this sense that uh, everything his music teacher believed in, his entire vision of the world yeah. was challenged by by these working Ab- class kids. In, in a way that we now take absolutely for granted. Because it seems so self-evident to us that, you know, talented people around the country, wherever they come from, are, are needed to help mm-hmm. us, um, you know, run the the country. But we're still we're still in that situation over here where there's, it's like the, the pipes of the British body politics are just I've got these like fatbergs of just like very sort <laughs> of privileged, expensively educated, not good enough people. Just clog, uh, clogging the whole system up, and you know it's such a shame because this could be such a, such a good country, such a great country if it wasn't. Well, that's one of the things, right? Like it's, it's a bit of a, a bit of a diversion, but like if you look at contemporary rock music and contemporary sort of rock bands, like there is, in, in a sense, that that area has been kind of re-cornered mm. by um, the sort of the privileged elites. Like if you look at the, some of the most successful. British bands, and I say specifically rock bands, because it's not the case, I guess, for for other genres yeah, of for music. Rap or grime or, yeah. Exactly. But like it's it's almost like this sort of what when the commercial social potential of these these art forms yeah. were recognized, then the kind of, for want of a better word, recolonization of them. Yeah, began. now if you if a band's a big uh success, it's just normal to go to their Wikipedia page and see that they're like their parents are hyperlinked and the uh-huh. school that they went to is hyperlinked. You know, that would have been absurd. Well, assuming Wikipedia existed, but that would have been <laughs> utterly absurd. Because these were um, not sort of damned art forms, really. They were looked down upon. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there was, it was, it would, people would have been ashamed. People in the press would have been ashamed to have mm-hmm. done this sort of thing. And um, 
the uh, success and the, the joy that these art forms have, have brought and also the fame and the celebrity and all those things has really attracted people um, who maybe who have the advantage of you know being able to live somewhere in London for a few years before while they're trying to you know get started get off the ground which is sort of right. impossible for most people now yeah it's, yeah yeah it's, and I, I mean I suppose um, if you want to kind of put a slightly positive spin on it and this is sort of one thing that you uh, you acknowledge in the book is this sort of this is in a way the fact that the British upper classes are kind of tried to get on those is almost partly due to what the Beatles did yeah to the art form as well they made it into something so transcendent that that sense of shame that you talked about yeah dissipated in a way yeah absolutely i mean you can, it's a similar thing in acting i mean a, acting mm. used to be lower than prostitution on the sort of social right. on the social scale <laughs> have an actor in the family my god that was that was just the, the shame that would that would sort of bring but it is you know the arts uh, are like a research and development department for the rest of culture they are mm. trying to come up with things that will that should spread to the rest of culture and mm. it's there's on some level it makes sense that you know if people come up with something uh, that is good and does improve people's lives, it should be shared and it should be sort of widely spread. So it's not um, it's not shocking that other sectors of society have stepped in. It's just shocking that the the people who started it, for want of a better word, mm. are being priced out and can no longer afford the you know the rents and the um, to live in 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 those early days of trying to make a name for yourself. That's that's yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's a real loss, I think. I mean, we've talked about one of the, uh, you know, several of the um, significant differences, obviously, between uh, what made the Beatles the Beatles and what made Ian Fleming Ian Fleming. Mm. But there's one really fascinating thing that they, a lot of them have in common, which is to do with the loss of parents or a parent yeah. when young. Yeah. Um, I, I found that one of the most fascinating sections of the book, this kind of idea that, um, I mean, you at a, at a moment you say that in prehistoric nomadic tribes of northern Europe, it was not unusual for a child who'd lost a parent to become uh, a shaman. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, we see that also in a lot of, um, you know, sort of archetypal stories. Yeah. Like the the death or the killing of the parents is one of the kind of the crucial steps on the, the hero's journey. Absolutely. And so it's just fascinating that these two very different groups of people should have this commonality of experience. Yeah, it was a shock to me uh, to realise just how widely it went through those stories. I mean, obviously everyone knows about John Lennon and the issues around his mother and his, you know, he was sent to live with his aunt Mimi and then he met his mother again and then she died. Uh, and all biographies or all accounts of John Lennon focus on this to a huge extent. And it's, it's seen as in some way um, more destabilising for him than when Paul McCartney lost his mother mm. at a similar sort of age um but i hadn't realized that it's pretty much everyone in that entire beatles story you know was either separated from a, a parent or lost a parent or was or sent away or raised by someone else with the exception of george harrison and george martin mm -hmm. you know uh, people like brian epstein were raised by nannies alan klein was sent to an orphanage and raised by nannies uh, Linda McCartney's mother died in a plane crash. Uh, Yoko didn't see her father for years, and her mum mm. was very, very distant. Um, Ringo, uh, his father left. You know, just the amount of people around these stories, it's just, um, it's more than a coincidence, it seems. Mm -hmm. It does seem more than a Obviously, 
this was after the Second World War. Sure. So you've got people like Pete Best and Stu Sutcliffe growing up without their fathers because of the Second World War mm. and all, all that sort of thing. So it's a little bit sort of different. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's um, it's a danger of equating that loss for a child with achieving great things. Um, there's theories about eminent orphans, um, mm-hmm. that your man who wrote, I'm trying to think of the guy who's, who wrote all those, those books about the 10,000 years. I guess who it was. But it's, it's something that's quite popular in Rays and stuff like that. But if you go to prisons, they're just full of people who just didn't oh. have both parents at all. It can really go either way. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's definitely not a, a thing. But it, it is a jolt into seeing the world in a way that is out of ordinary at a very right. early time. And mm-hmm. it does bring a bit of adult perception to a child at a very early uh, time so it probably isn't that surprising that it is so common amongst you know great artists and, and yeah 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 like that. and that brings us on to um the subject of the imagination which you talk about quite early on in the book mm. uh, and you use um coleridge's definition mm. of imagination as the arrival of something truly new yeah um and it's funny like i um accepted that sort of unquestioningly about the Beatles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then I realized there was a certain resistance in me to think of Bond in that way. And I think, yeah. and I did a little bit of kind of exploration. of, of my, <laughs> I, I think we've all probably known like a Bond guy in our lives. And when I think of like, you know, men who I've met who are kind of quite obsessed with the films and yeah. sort of in a slightly kind of Alan Partridge type well, way will correct you on details or will in some way sort of fetishize them and sure. i think sort of one thing your book did for me was maybe understand like despite that resistance and mm-hmm. you, know, you don't have to necessarily like mm-hmm. uh the the art you're talking about and it doesn't necessarily even have to be coming from a good place mm. but there is uh clearly something deep in the the creation of bond which must come from fleming yes that's makes it something truly new as Coleridge would Yes, say. I would I would argue it's not all from Fleming. I think pe- the rival people like Sean Connery really did change right. the character to a certain extent. But if you look at, you know, just look at the history of American cinema up to the end of the 1950s, beginning of the 1960s, uh, the staple was cowboy films. It was westerns. It was right. the good guys and the bad guys. The, the, the arrival of Bond is this huge boom in spy cinema, I think, in 19... 19- mm. That's it, 65 or something. There's like 30 American films, and it's all like, you know, The Man from Uncle and uh, Mission Impossible and uh, just countless others. Oh, Man Flint, all these all these films start to arrive. And the, the cowboy thing dies out. The, mm. the, 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 the solid staple for the beginning of the century of cinema, it's gone. And it, it's because the spy films, they have the same black and white attitudes, good guys, bad guys, gunfights, punches, and all that, all the action that people liked. But instead of looking backwards, it was started to look, sort of looking forwards. They all kind of mm. set in a, a, a near future where the technology is a little bit more exciting. You know, it's, they're not quite now. They're, they're in a little near future. So there's a real shift between this nostalgic thing to a sort of forward-looking thing in American cinema. And then you follow that through with the moon landing and the, mm. you know, the rise of Silicon Valley and stuff for the rest of the century. So you can see that uh, you can see ch- a change there. Uh, you, obviously, it's not all just because of Bond or anything like that. But mm. it does signify uh, probably better than anything else like that, that, that flip, that switch into mm. this forward looking uh, yeah, attitude, yeah, yeah. I think. 
But back to that that idea of the 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 imagination itself. Mm. Um, one thing that is um, I think really interesting. It's such a difficult thing to to explore and to and to write about. And so they, you have this wonderful um, quote from the brilliant uh, Paul Muldoon, mm. um, who I think worked with McCartney on his lyrics um, book. Yeah, in his lyrics book. Yeah, and it's it's this idea that um, artists don't really know what they're doing like there's something yeah. at work deep inside it but i think that's definitely something confirmed in that you know that wonderful um get back uh, yeah. documentary from earlier this year absolutely that like you know each of them came across a completely brilliant in their own way and yet there's something in the recipe mm. of the four of them mm. that creates this sort of yeah this 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 transcendent artwork which none of them would ever go on to e come anywhere near in their in their solo career yeah i think so i think there was certainly after john lennon moved to america i don't mm. think anything really touches the 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 immediate 1970 sort of era was still on that high and it's still a lot of music um based on the sort of post rishikesh period or mm. or their trip to india or that, that, that there was a huge creative burst uh, a huge creative flowering for all four of them after after that after that trip and that sort of lingered for a bit but mm. um that just the, the notion of the beatles as a gestalt entity these four people who together make up something larger it's almost mm. alchemical it's um you know you can it, i love saying that like john is fire and ringo is earth ah. and like paul is sky and and george is water and together they they create that fifth element that element of sort of spirit and when they sort of split apart you know there's interesting and fascinating things about all four of them but mm. it's really the relationships between them that um turned uh, a group into something more in, in, into mm. something special um, and there's a, there was a lot of journalism, certainly in the 70s and the 80s, when they were writing about the Beatles. And it was done from the point of view of individualism. And it was mm -hmm. trying to work out, well, the Beatles are great, so whose fault was that? Who, can, who yeah, is it? Yeah, yeah. Was it John? Who was the best? They were trying mm -hmm. to work out. They were viewing them as from a point of competition. Yeah. Didn't really get anywhere. But we've sort of uh -huh. moved on from that now. And and particularly the Lennon-McCartney relationship is, is sort of analysed much more as a love story. Mm -hmm. And it is the relationships between them that really matter and really yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, That's really refreshing, I think, because when I was sort of growing sort of up and into the Beatles in like the early 90s, mm. that, that was very much a narrative as you describe it. Like it was sort of, who's your favourite Beatle? Who was the best? Who was the most talented? And yeah. like the, the general consensus seemed to be around John and there was something yeah. almost kind of slightly jokey or slightly absurd about uh, about Paul McCartney. Yeah, and um, you, it, it just it's shocking to the young people today to realise what a joke Paul McCartney was to people in the nineteen eighties. Uh, that wacky macker thumbs aloft sort of you know after the uh, mm. uh, the, the frog song and you know sure. Mullock and Tower and all these sort of things. You know his critical standing couldn't have been lower, but he just kept this weird sort of armour of normalness around him. And he, all his records were about home and family and love and stuff like that. And now, in 2020, the values that he's exposed, we're, it's like we've caught up. We go, well, yeah, these are the right values. We, he's very, he very fits really well 
in into the modern uh, world, which for a guy who's eighty is not bad. You know, let's face it, it's not yeah, not, not yeah, yeah. at all. We've all sort of um, uh, come to appreciate and and, uh, and 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 believe really what he was sort of trying to tell us all that time. The whole notion of you know these lionized Dionysian rock star, you know, like lion like uh, gods. You know, the, I am the golden god. That you know, Led Zeppelin sort of, <laughs> sort of thing. That's just a joke to kids. That's just an, they cringe like nobody's has. It's so embarrassing to them. You know, those, <laughs> those rock and roll attitudes of the of the late twentieth century um, just got eaten up and led to Marilyn Manson, essentially. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, but that's that's it as well. It's sort of it's the of the values of rock and roll, and also I guess specifically the values of masculinity as well. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. a sort of, you know, sort of male virtue. Like what is what is a good man? What is a real man? What is a strong man? Mm. And in the sort of the juxtaposition again of the Beatles and Bond, you really couldn't have <laughs> yeah. two more sort of like <laughs> archetypal case studies to uh, oh, set alongside each other. Absolutely. I mean, just the, I mean, I, I get a chapter out on about their hair. because it says so much and it describes so much it was such a uh, a cultural battleground you know people talk now about oh the culture war that's always ongoing and they're sick to death of you know some politicians you know trying to start this culture war and and things Mm. like that but if you go back and look at what people were saying about long hair and men at the time (laughs) it's exactly the same it's uh it's the same then you know people were getting beaten up for having long hair and all this sort of stuff yeah, it's very weird. But this, what I find interesting about Bond is that pretty much from the moment Ian Fleming died, the character moved away from mm. how Ian Fleming saw him. And the, the sort of the, the film producers, they always go, oh, we, we're going back to Fleming. We're going back. They, they, yeah. They're protesting a little bit too much. The character's changed sort of quite mm. a lot. Um, and he is the, you know, the idealised uh you know the, the archetypal male fantasy is to be like James Bond. Everyone wants to be like James Bond. It's part of its huge sort of success. But what that means, it's like the character sort of traces how being male and what and how men should behave and what men want through the decades. And you can see mm. it sort of change and move quite a lot. And it's never, um, it's never properly up to date. It's always mm. lagging behind. It's never ideologically pure. It's, you can never defend the Bond vision of masculinity because yeah, it's yeah, something yeah. like that. But it, that sort of messy territory is where change happens. And the character of Bond does show that, you know, what it is to be male now mm. is so different to what it was to be in, in Ian Fleming's time. And we've come a long way and we've, come in the right direction as well uh, for for mostly most i'm talking broad strokes here and we sort of lose that because we just focus on where we're still awful you know oh we're still awful there and and it's still terrible that sort of thing we sort of miss the 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 overall trajectory of how we're changing Mm. i think and it's so it is interesting to see that in in the bond i'm certainly it's quite funny when like the Daily Mail is trying to write about the last Daniel Craig Bond film and the word woke isn't enough for them. <laughs> and so they, they, they coined the phrase super woke. Yeah, the, wow. The Daniel Craig's <laughs> super woke. And then, you know, he'd come up to the premiere in like a, a pink jacket, you know, it's like, oh, no, I can't, I can't possibly do that. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's um, it's interesting, isn't it? I think like because Bond, in a way, has sort of maybe from his inception, there was probably at least a sense in Fleming that he was kind of an example of masculinity and like now very much with the Daniel Craig one is almost like a warning yeah. of the kind of, the, you know, there's that moment and you mention it in the book, they're sort of where it's perhaps first explicitly said, like I think Judy Dench call says to Pierce Brosnan's mm-hmm. Bond, like, oh, you're a dinosaur. Yeah. And there's, there's that moment of, it's almost like the tipping point, like we've been understanding it, <laughs> but then it's almost like, yeah, no, the films are saying this and it tips, yeah, as I say, from being an example to, yeah, so this is why it's just going to be fascinating where they go from now on in now that Daniel Craig's left, because um, the next Bond should be in their early 30s. This is going to be the first mm-hmm. millennial Bond, right? Right. And the millennials have grown up in a very different sort of sexual universe to Ian mm-hmm. Fleming. The, the notion that um, uh, Bond was a bit of a slut, right? Was supposed mm. to be quite classy for in Ian Fleming's mind. He was, he was, yeah, you know, yeah, he yeah. slept around, you know. Um, for a generation growing up with you know, hook-up apps and and things like that, that means absolutely nothing. That's just that's just sort of laughable. And really, the sort of the idealized sort of vision of masculinity of of being male in the early thirties generation, they're probably really going to be looking at someone like Harry Styles mm. but the older band fans are going to be horrified by this you know it's going to be a real sort of um jolt it's going to be very difficult for them because with the Daniel Craig films as successful as they are they did lose the sort of teen audience mm. and people raised in the 21st century generally portray themselves well see Bond as like everything they're against you know, yeah, the yeah, old yeah. way of the, the white male sort of protagonist, just the imperialist and misogynist. Um, he's he's not the hero for them. He's just every, yeah, everything yeah, yeah. they're against. And so you, uh, things like Comic-Con, no one dresses as James Bond anymore or anything like that. It's, um, mm-hmm. That's that's all gone. And if they're to get a young audience on board again, which in the long term they'll have to, it's going to be really interesting to see how they portray, you know, what this next Bond's going to be like. And they seem, yeah. they, seem, they seem to be having difficulty doing it. You'd expect them, you know, they finished the last one before the pandemic. You'd expect them to be well ahead on the next one now, but they just don't seem to be sure yeah. what, how to do it at this moment. I suppose in a way that's a kind of a crucial difference. Like we talked at the beginning um, about the longevity of both, like the, the Beatles music and, and the James Bond character. Mm. But in order to survive... Bond has had to evolve, whereas the Beatles, yeah. you know, there has been, you know, the music is the music. Like yeah. maybe the way it's packaged, the way it's presented has has shifted over the years, but essentially it is the same product still being listened to and still being loved yeah. 60 years later. Whereas, as you say, the Daniel Craig Bond compared to the Sean Connery Bond compared to the Bond of in course. the original book, in order to survive, has had to evolve. And I wonder, do you think... Like, I, I have n- almost no doubt, and maybe that's just because I'm a weird obsessive, but, like, that the Beatles will be listened to in 60 years' time again. I also believe but that, yes. I'm not... I, I remain to be convinced that they will still be making Bond films in that time. Like, do you think there's a possibility that society will just change so much that ultimately the character of Bond cannot Definitely. keep going? Definitely. It's, if you look at the early interviews with the 
Bond producer Cubby Broccoli when they had to mm. change Bond for the first time and Sean Connery didn't want to do it anymore. He'd portray Bond as, oh, one of those classic characters that's constantly been, you know, portrayed by different actors and things. Like that. And the examples he used were Sherlock Holmes and Tarzan. And with Sherlock Holmes, that's still pretty much the case. He's a classic character. He's constantly reinvented and every, every generation gets their own Sherlock Holmes and things like that. Tarzan, that's not the case at all. You know, Tarzan's dead as a cultural property now. And there doesn't seem to be any way it could be sort of reinvigorated. The, the notion that if a, a white um, aristocrat child was like put in the middle of the African jungle as a baby, they would then become like lord of that jungle because they're best you know yeah. it's, it's just no way you can resurrect that that's just we just yeah. don't think that way uh, and so it's a real danger that bond is, is all a character that could go that way now in this book i take the conceit that bond represents death and so death cannot mm. die um and for that reason i'm i suspect you'll go on i, I suspect because mm. represents death um will not be able to kill him off in 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 the way that yeah that, uh, most, and because every every film uh, that's come out since about 1967 there's been a, a review in the papers that says yeah it's a bit old hat this they should stop doing these it's, it's mm-hmm. you're past your time mate you know forget it this this should be the yeah, last yeah. don't do this anymore and you had that in the 60s you had that in the 70s you had that in the 80s you had that in the 90s you had that in the noughties you had that in the last decade you had that when the last film came out it's just a constant it's it's mm. you know it's almost tradition you should cheer that when it sort of appears for the next next bond film um there is something about him that should have been killed off but it hasn't yeah yeah, yeah. so there is yeah it's it's uh so this is what i found this absolutely fascinating dichotomy in the book so you you, know, you said the other as you said like uh bond represents death mm-hmm. the beatles represent love mm-hmm. and you know in freudian psychoanalysis these are the two opposing sort of drives yeah. in, Eros in, human, and in human lives yeah. um but i guess that thing of bond representing death it's probably not something which the creators or custodians of Bond would necessarily admit to. <laughs> or you know, if, if they were asked to define what Bond represents, it would probably be patriotism and bravery yeah. and yeah. maybe certain things. And I, I find that really fascinating that, that maybe it's a bit sort of like, perhaps you're right that he won't die, but there is maybe a, a, a danger that if they, if the only way they can keep him alive in mm. a sense is by recognizing you know, yeah. by accepting that that's what he represents. Yeah, way. I think so. I mean, um, the in the Sean Connery years, he was just a cold-blooded killer. In the first film, mm. he just kills an unarmed man and thinks nothing of it. Roger yeah. Moore, he was a bit more, oh, I'm, 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 I'm a lover, not yeah. a killer. He wanted to move away from that. But at the same time, the stunt team stepped up. And yeah. the, the importance of the stunt team became so important. And, they were, and in those pre-CGI days... That was that was genuinely, you know, thrilling and shocking, and it's still amazing. A lot of what the, mm. the stunt team and, and there has been a stuntman who's died. You know, death is very much um, on screen almost. It is, it is, it is part of the character. What you're talking about, how they'll say, oh, it's patriotism or or duty or honor or these sort of things. You hear that a lot, but then you watch the Bond films, and he's, you know, constantly sort of going rogue. And sort oh. of stepping outside the, cha- the chain of command when it suits him, when he wants yeah. to. Yeah, he does it for queen and country. He says that's his sort of excuse. But when it comes down to it, when he doesn't want that, he, you know, he doesn't blink twice about um, mm-hmm. 
about going rogue or something like that. That's not really what's driving him. It's mm. it's more the thrill of it, really. It's the competition. You know, there's a bad guy. So in a way, it is to do the right thing and and, mm. to, and to save people. There is there is for all the sort of um, darker side of masculinity in Bond. It is sort of married to a, a more positive positive side. So, yeah, it'd be very interesting to see where that goes. And with, and with the idea of the Beatles representing love, um, I mean, firstly, of course, that in a, in, can expect the conversation we were having about masculinity and, and male virtue. Like it's sort of, mm. there is that, uh, I mean, I, I think probably they're very outdated now, but certainly at the time that they were, um, they were, they were, they were uh, creating music, you know, the idea of sort of four men expressing so openly this mm. idea not just for sort of you know the, the, the sexual desire but like this kind of love and love beyond you know just a sort of a monogamous married relationship or something like that but something open, sort of open great yourself scale. up to something larger basically becoming yeah, yeah, yeah. part of something larger mm. uh whether that's just losing your sense of an individual becoming a couple in their early sort of you know teenage love song sort of period or in the middle period where it's opening yourself up to everything and becoming part mm. of everything that real sort of psychedelic sort of sort of thing um and of course to open yourself up puts you at risk which is where mm. bond sort of would never do these would never right. sort of drop down his ar- armor in quite those mm. in quite those terms yeah, so it, yeah. is a, it is an opposite it is a different and for the, the generation grown up after the war it was fairly clear what men should be. They should be strong and good at fighting so they can protect mm. their family and they can protect girls and stuff like that. Um, that was what all the comics, they were, all the war comics they were reading, you know, yeah. clear examples of this. So the fact that the, the teenage girls didn't want that was a real kind of a shock. And, you know, they, they were screaming at these boys who had effeminate hair who were talking about emotions, talking openly about emotions and wanting to hold hands and, and things like that. It's a real shock for a lot, you know, a big part of male identity. It was like that thing you should be that's like difficult, but you try and be it. No one wants that. Oh. You know, that's bad. That's that sort of, you know, that's all sort of gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there um, a case, do you think, to be argued for, um, you know, the Beatles representing love and certainly like overtly in their lyrics, in their music, in a lot of mm. their sort of uh, aesthetic, they clearly yeah. did. When you find out a little bit more about their private lives and their actions and stuff like, maybe it gets a little bit cloudier, particularly in the sort of the early days, you know, their their, their younger days. Do you think that this kind of this idea of them representing love is in some way connected to that sort of transcendence that we talked about before, like sort of almost like the, you know, it's it's separate from uh their sort of let's say grubby everyday uh uh yeah, lives. Or, is there, or is there something yeah i mean john I lennon figures heavily in, in what mm. you're talking about i quote um sure. julian lennon as, as a child he said to his mum um cynthia puts it in a, in her book uh which is great incidentally i'd hardly recommend if anyone wants to understand john lennon i'd hardly re- recommend the book by his sister julia baird his half sister mm. his first wife cynthia uh, and May Pang, his his later partner, the three of them, those three books just paint his life perfectly. But there's there's a quote in there from Julian about uh, his dad had left the country. His dad left and gone away and not told him. Um, and he says to his mother, dad's always going on about how we should love each other. How come he doesn't love me? 
you know mm-hmm. it's just heartbreaking it's yeah, really yeah. heartbreaking to read um because they were because john lennon in particular was this sort of wounded healer archetype mm. you know he 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 was messed up he was he came from uh his back his you know his background sort of ruined him he was a wreck but mm. what he did do was try to be, get better was try mm. to improve and the move from this sort of you know violent liverpudlian young lad who uh, hit his first wife on one occasion uh, and who violence was normal in in their in their sort of social and cultural surroundings to this peace activist this sort of this this um this international icon of of uh, pacifism and peace hmm. um is is an is an attempt to him of someone who's in a bad situation realizing that the only thing they can do is try and move away from it. I mean, mm-hmm. he wasn't always entirely uh, per- good at this. He wasn't entirely perfect yeah. at this, especially when he drank, when he drank in the 70s. He, you know, that, that mess of him was, was mm-hmm. still sort of there. But I think that's what we, what we connect to with John Lennon, this sense of he's imperfect, but he's trying. Mm-hmm. He's imperfect. Uh, yeah. His intentions are pointing him in the right that's kind of us really isn't it yeah that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, that is really us yeah there's um connected to that uh and this is one of the last things uh we'll talk about i think is the um so the i, I had no idea about the story behind the composition and first performance of all you need is love oh, oh um, that's a great story yeah yeah so maybe you could just for our listeners who don't know just give a kind of a quick summary of how that came about and the context in which it was broadcast well satellites had been invented that's the, that's the gist of it it was just a decade after sputnik but uh, mm-hmm. the earth was ringed by communication satellites and suddenly in theory it would be possible for everyone in the world to be watching the same thing on television uh, and so this program our world was um launched in 1967 this international uh, I think it was a two-hour show with segments from all the countries around the world. Uh, not all, but most. You know, Russia wouldn't have anything to do with it and things like that. And there were strict rules about what could be in it. Couldn't be um, political. You couldn't have politicians. Um, but many countries just were patriotic. They'd have like national costumes, national dances, and try to promote themselves to the world. And um, when it sort of came to the UK. It cuts to London to Abbey Road Studios, and our segment, the the British segment, was watching the Beatles in the studio, and this is where we get all you need is love, um, and it was such a oh, such a a moment that crystallised that whole nineteen sixty seven sort of change that was happening. But what I love particularly about it is what I was saying about that there was a, a you know a lot of countries has this desire to be patriotic. Mm-hmm. Um, in their piece, the Beatles reacting to that was well. We'll start, you know, with the national anthem, the mm-hmm. French national anthem. Yeah, <laughs> we start with the French. I just love that about them, mm-hmm. and that, that attitude. Um, it's funny, but it's right. It's just, it's just, yeah. it's just yeah. great. And that's everything I love about this country in one act was is, is yeah. that. Yeah, obviously, there's a lot more to this country that there's anything like that. Obviously, but that's the that's right. the sort of stuff that we need to love and to sort of celebrate. And I think that was the thing that really resonated with me in reading that chapter. And in fact, reading about the Beatles generally, but like particularly that moment crystallized it. Mm. Was, you know, Britain, I think, 
has been and continues to go through quite a let's say a, a problematic stage in yeah. its uh, in its history yeah. and so i think someone who particularly you know who left britain 17 years ago and sort of and has a sort of mixed relationship with the country it was this reminder of the sort of you know where that awful phrase like people say the best of british there yeah. are certain things like the Beatles, and I would put certain things like you know the the young ones or something like that, sort mm-hmm. of alongside of William Blake, another one of your yes, absolutely uh, the KLF, like all this kind of this kind of British abs- absurdity, this sort of in, in a sense kind of refusing to take themselves seriously, but mm-hmm. in, a, in doing so, producing something that's more profoundly serious than you could. Yeah. Uh, could wish for absolutely absolutely that 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 uh that sweet spot of taking yourself seriously and not taking yourself seriously at the same time mm. is a is a real joke i wish we could um redefine words like um you know patriotism and nationalism or jingoism or something like that mm-hmm. so that say um patriotism was to love some aspects of a country right because then everyone would go yes i get that i get that uh Places are always, you know, have darkness and light. They all, nowhere is like a perfect utopia. There is, there is always darkness, but there is, again, there is always light. They're always a mix. They, they really are. Um, nationalism, as I understand it, is denying that and claiming that everything here is brilliant and perfect and the best and superior and therefore other places are not and they're worse and they're mm. bad and they're bad. And I hate that so much. Um, it's like a sort of hype, but it's used to sort of hijack uh, your love of the good things around mm-hmm. you and you know, good things in your culture. And you know, there are there are many there are many of those. It's we definitely do need to. Um, I mean, I write a lot about Britain, but I tend to mm-hmm. try and focus on shining a light on things that I think are positive and of value and of, of wonderful and should be shared and should oh. be shared around the world i mean someone like william blake is a gift to the, the planet as far as i can see and if people are unaware of william blake of, of his work and hardly recommend people just sort to have a look and the beatles are again another another example of, of, of that um it's but it's important so it was interesting writing this book that balanced the beatles with you know the mm. darker aspects of bond Yes, yeah, yeah, always yeah. there's always darkness. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's never it never goes away. But you, 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 just before before we finish, I'd like to just ask because there are so many points in this book where uh, Bond and the Beatles overlap and yeah. they sort of cross over with each other, and sometimes in like quite big thematic ways, and some in quite sort of like coincidental but sort of quite sort of amusing and frivolous ways, yeah. but which is kind of interesting nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember well, well a few weeks ago when we were corresponding about. Uh, this podcast where I sent you a, a, a t- uh, an article from the Guardian where it was about the golden eye video game. Oh, yes. And yes. The, the picture was captioned, happiness is a warm gun, yes. which is sort of like, <laughs> you know, which, it, it, it's just one of, one of these kind of light sort of brushings against, but which in some way underlined the point that you were making. Yeah. So I was just curious to finish. Is there sort of, could you think of one or two of perhaps the more sort of frivolous or amusing examples of where the world of Bond and the world of the Beatles touch that uh that most surprised you or most amused you when you were writing the book uh probably the one that most amused me was when george harrison was dying uh and he had throat cancer he couldn't really speak 
but what he did, he had a talking Dr. Evil doll. Now, if you remember Dr. <laughs> Evil from the um, Alan Partridge, uh, yes. not Alan Partridge, what, no, the no. Austin Powers films, mm-hmm. um, the, the Blofeld type character. Uh, and so he was using Dr. Evil, um, this Bond villain, to sort of uh, say goodbye to people and, and, and things like that. And on one hand, he's trying to commute these, communicate these great sort of spiritual truths. And he leaves this beautiful sort of last words for his family to give to the world, which I don't have off the top of my head, but they're in the book. And it's, it's a really lovely thing. But the notion of them coming from a Dr. Evil talking <laughs> doll um, sums up George Harrison beautifully that i really loved that i really loved and the fact that it was ringo that got the bond girl you know it was yes. ringo that got the the that life of love and happiness with barbara back mm-hmm. uh, out of all people he, the one who really deserved you know <laughs> to, to hit gold as it were in, in life jackpot and be rich and, and healthy he's so healthy now compared to what he was i love yeah. that about him definitely well, that's a perfect place on which to to leave it. Such a such a wonderful book. Uh, Love and Let Die is, of course, out now. It's available from Shakespeare and Company, from our bricks and mortar store, from our website, uh, our newly relaunched website. So do go there and check that out. Or it's available, of course, from your independent bookstore, uh, wherever wherever you may live. Uh, John, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Adam. I've enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.